In 1869, the United States got a little smaller when the Powell Expedition successfully traversed the length of the Grand Canyon. Major John Wesley Powell, a Civil War hero who lost his arm in the Battle of Shiloh, led an expedition that descended the canyon from Green River Station, Wyoming, to the mouth of the Virgin River in Arizona. It was a voyage marked by setbacks, danger, hardships, acrimony between the expedition leader and many of his men. On August 29, 1869, near the lower end of the Grand Canyon, the boatmen beached their vessels on the riverbank immediately above what would turn out to be the last set of dangerous rapids on the entire journey. Seneca Howland, his brother Ormel, and William Dunn announced that they were leaving the expedition. Ignoring Powell's pleas that they remain with the main group, the three disgruntled adventurers told him they intended to climb 4,000 vertical feet from the river to the canyon's north rim, then walk across more than 100 miles of barren desert to a Mormon settlement in southern Utah. By this point, the expedition had traveled nearly a 1,000 perilous river miles. All nine men were battered, hungry, and they had only five days of provisions left mostly consisting of dried apples and coffee. The party's greatest problem, however, was the rift that developed between Major Powell and his mentally unstable brother, Captain William Powell, on the one hand, and five free-spirited trappers on the other. The trouble resulted from the military discipline of the Powells and the frontier independence of the five trappers. On August 28th, after Dunn and Howland brothers watched their companions crash through separation rapids and then disappear around a bend in the river, the three deserters began the arduous climb out of the Grand Canyon, carrying two rifles, a shotgun, a duplicate set of expedition papers, and a silver watch one of the men had asked to have delivered to his sister just in case he drowned. Dunn and Howland ascended the steep gulch to reach the north rim, then set out across the Shivitz Plateau. Thirty arduous miles from the river's edge, they climbed the gentle slopes of an extinct volcano, now called Mount Dellenbaugh. In order to get their bearings and plot a course across the harsh country that stretched ahead of them, on Dellenbaugh's 6,990-foot summit, Dunn scratched his name on the face of a boulder, and then the trio presumably headed north to the Mormon settlements. Nobody knows for sure, though, because Dunn and the Howland brothers never reappeared. Welcome to episode 15 of Everything But the Kitchen Sink podcast. Today we'll be discussing the Dunn and Howland's disappearance and murders in 1869. The Powell expedition is remembered as the first group of Americans to traverse the full length of the Grand Canyon. Yet the mystery of what happened to Dunn and the Howland brothers remains one of America's best and little-known unsolved mysteries. This episode will cover the events of their disappearance and provide possible theories for what happened to the doomed men. Okay, now let's start the show. After Powell and the rest of the team made it through Separation Rapids without flipping their boats, they pulled ashore and waited about two hours fired guns, and motioned for the Howlands and Dunn to come on as they could have done by climbing along the cliffs. The last they were seen was of them standing on the reef and motioning for the others to continue on, which they did. 
Two days after floating away from the three deserters, Powell's group arrived safely at the confluence of the Virgin River where they encountered a group of Mormons netting fish. The saints generously fed the emaciated explorers, then escorted them to St. George, which was the principal city in southern Utah. On Powell's way back to Salt Lake City, several days later, he read in a newspaper that three of the Powell expedition were killed by Indians. It was reported that the three men saw a squaw gathering seeds and they shot her, whereupon three Shivitz Indians followed them and killed them. When Powell heard the news, he refused to believe that Dunn and the Howlands had been killed by the Shivitz, who were retiring, relatively small band of Indians. His skepticism was based largely on reports that the woman, who had allegedly been raped before she was murdered, was alone and unarmed. Powell argued that he'd known O.G. Howland for many years, and he had no hesitation in pronouncing that that part of the story where they raped the woman was libel. Powell claimed that it was not in the man's faithful, genial nature to do such a thing. Jack Sumner, one of the expedition members who'd emerged safely from the Grand Canyon with Major Powell, and who was a close friend of William Dunn and the Howland brothers, also didn't see eye-to-eye with Powell on most matters, but shared the major skepticism that Indians had killed the companions. He claimed that he'd trained Dunn for years regarding how to avoid surprise, and he claimed that it was the double-dyed white devils that infested the region who had done the killing. Sumner even later claimed that years later he saw a Mormon with a silver watch that he had given Howland to return to his sister on his wrist. A year after completing their mission, Powell met with some Shivitz who, through a Mormon interpreter, freely admitted that they killed the three white men. With this, Powell formally took the Shivitz' word and forgave them for killing the men of his expedition. It remains one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of the West, and most scholars have taken the Shivitz' word for it that they murdered the men. Yet, despite this, voices of protest remain, and it was actually the Mormons who murdered the Howlands and Dunn. To help figure out this mystery, we need to look into the history of Mormons in southern Utah and learn about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. By the time it reached the uplands of southern Utah, the wagon train that would be known to history as the Fancher Party included some 130 immigrants, mostly from Arkansas, as well as a thousand head of cattle and 200 horses. Over the preceding weeks, a downtrodden assortment of blackouts, which were apostate Mormons eager to leave the territory, had joined the Fancher Party as well, swelling the company's ranks to approximately 140. This unusually large train sped out, spread out along miles of the old Spanish trail and rolled into the mountain meadow over several hours on the evening of September 6, 1857, and the travelers stopped for the night besides a clear Artesian spring. Their campsite was in the middle of a shallow valley, 5,800 feet above sea level, carpeted by lush green grass. The temperature dipped into the 40s when the sun went down, and at daybreak, after rousing themselves from their bedrolls, the group huddled around campfires to warm their hands and to cook. The crisp morning air smelled like smoke. No one suspected that they were about to be attacked. 
the Arkansan, the Arkansas, uh, the Arkansans hadn't even bothered to circle the wagons the night before, as they were accustomed to do. They were sitting down for breakfast when a shot rang out, and a child was the first killed. That first shot was the beginning of a furious surprise assault that would fatally wound seven Arkansan, Arkansans before the day was out. The immigrants quickly circled their wagons into a defensive corral, dug in the best they could, and returned fire, repelling the first wave of assailants. They assumed they were being ambushed by Indians, a conjecture that seemed to be confirmed by glimpses of dark-skinned men in war paint shooting at them. As it happened, some were Paiute Indians, but most were Mormons from nearby settlements who had simply paid in their faces to look like Indians. John D. Lee, who was the leader of the Mormons, assumed the Arkansans would quickly succumb to the surprise attack, but the Fancher party was disciplined, very brave, and well-armed, and their ranks included expert riflemen. After the initial volley of gunfire, the Arkansans quickly circled their wagons, dug into bunkers, and immediately initiated a counter-assault, utterly confounding the Mormon attackers. At least one Paiute brave was killed, and two chiefs were mortally wounded, and the Indian and Mormon forces were decisively repulsed, dealing a completely unanticipated blow to their resolve. As they regrouped at a safe distance, the Indians expressed their displeasure with the bungled operation in no uncertain terms, and they threatened to leave. At this, John D. Lee rode off to summon Mormon reinforcements. In the meantime, the Mormons and their Paiute mercenaries kept pressure on the Arkansans by harassing them with sniper fire, preventing them from getting fresh water from a stream. By now, having glimpsed many fair-skinned men among those shooting, the immigrants deduced that their attackers were probably Mormons. Hungry and thirsty, they realized that their situation was turning grim. Their ammunition was running out, and they could neither bury their dead nor take care of the wounded. Most of their horses were driven away, and some 60 animals were killed in the crossfire. The carcasses of those beasts were putrefying around the Arkansans in the late summer sun. On the night of September 12th, two brave immigrants made a desperate attempt to sneak through the siege lines and summon help. One of the escapees came upon a group of men camped beside a spring. Believing they were a party of Gentiles, they rushed into their midst and blurted out a plea for help. These men were not Gentiles but Mormons, who then turned and shot the escapees dead. The next, Mormon, the next morning, the Mormons sent a convert towards the encircled immigrants under a white flag. The Mormon was instructed to tell them that they, the Mormons were there to intercede with the Indians on the Arkansans' behalf and would escort them to safety if they handed over their weapons. It took two hours to win the immigrants' confidence, but eventually, seeing no alternative, they agreed to these terms and gave up their weapons. The youngest Arkansas children and several wounded were placed on a wagon and driven away. They were followed on foot by the immigrant women and the older children. A few hundred yards behind the group, the men of the Fancher party were led away in single file with each immigrant escorted closely by a Mormon guard. 
After approximately 30 minutes, the Mormon leader who brought up the rear discharged a firearm to get the other saint's attention. Halt, he ordered, and shouted, Do your duty. At this command, each Mormon immediately fired a bullet point-blank point into the head of the captive under his purview. Most of the immigrant men died instantly. For the men that survived the first enfilade, their th throats were slit. Then the women and children were murdered by the Mormons. The slaughter was over in a matter of minutes, leaving an estimated 120 immigrants dead. Approximately 50 of the victims were men, 20 were women, and 50 were children and adolescents. Out of the entire Fancher party, only 17 lives were spared because they were deemed too young to remember enough to bear witness against the saints. The Mormons then completed a half-hearted and hastily undertaken burial. The Mormons then gathered around and gave thanks to God for delivering our enemies into their hands. It was then reiterated that they must always say that the Indians did it alone and that the Mormons had nothing to do with it. It was voted unanimously that any man who should divulge the secret or tell who was present or do anything that would lead to the discovery of the truth should suffer death. The question is, why did the Mormons kill all the members of the Fancher party? Simply put, it was greed. It was reputed to be the richest and best equipped party train to ever cross the continent. Among the group's 1,200 head of livestock were prized Texas Longhorns and a strikingly beautiful thoroughbred horse worth $3,000 in 1857 money, equivalent to several hundred thousand dollars. Additionally, it was rumored that the Fancher party was carrying a strong box filled with thousands of dollars in gold coins. Thus, for the poverty-stricken poverty and starving Latter-day Saints of southern Utah, the riches could not have failed to arouse the interest of people who had considered it's righteous to steal from the godless. Thus, now that you know about the history of the Mountain Meadows Massacre and the violence of Mormons in northern Arizona and southern Utah, I want to offer a possible re-examination of what might have happened to the Howland brothers and Mr. Dunn. In the years after the Mountain Meadows Massacre, a $5,000 bounty was placed on the heads of the Mormon leaders charged with the crime. By the time Powell and his men began the expedition almost a decade later, President Grant made it a priority to capture the perpetrators in the Mountain Meadows Massacre and bring them to justice. When Dunn and Howland decided to abandon Powell's expedition and walk to the Mormon settlements, Many of the Mormons in the region were living in constant fear of arrest. Thus, there was a volatile atmosphere that awaited the men as they walked north from Mount Dellenbaugh. It is speculated that the Howlands and Dunn came upon Mountain Meadows fugitives who assumed that Powell's men were federal agents or bounty hunters. The claim that they were harmless explorers wouldn't have been believed by the Mormons, because it was thought that the Grand Canyon was completely impassable. According to the scenario, the Mormons hauled the explorers into town where they were tried under a kangaroo court and executed. This theory has been disparaged by most historians as they all suggest that the Indians were the ones responsible. 
This view was based on accounts that the Shivits freely confessed to murdering the men in front of Powell who accepted their offering and apology. Yet this should be taken with a grain of salt because Powell didn't speak the Shivit language and had no idea what they were saying, and it just so happens that the translator, who was a Mormon, was connected to the saints who engaged in the Mountain Meadows Massacre killing. The Shivit murder also doesn't stand up the test to common sense. No effort was made by the saints to recover the guns, scientific instruments, or papers from the Indians. No saints made the short trip to arrest the alleged perpetrators or even ask where the bodies were buried. Also, it strains belief that three Shivits would have been able to surprise and kill three seasoned and well-armed mountain men. The Shivits had no ammunition or firearms and were known to be docile and a poor band of Indians. Dunn and, Howland, Dunn and the Howlands, on the other hand, had two rifles and a shotgun and were ever alert to the possibility of ambush after years of tangling with the Indians. For example, before joining Powell's expedition, William Dunn had been wounded four times in fights against the Comanches and as a consequence was especially wary of further attacks. Thus, when thinking about who killed Dunn and the Howlands, we must take into consideration that the Mormons were not above framing Indians for doing their dirty work. When we think about the disappearance occurring at the time when the federal government was looking to prosecute the Mormons guilty of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, it's more likely that the three expedition men were in the wrong place at the wrong time and were the unfortunate victims of mistaken identity. All right, that's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and I'll talk to you next week.